Welcome to the Always On Podcast. I'm your host, Duncan McPherson. And on this podcast, our objective is to continually enable our audience, which are high caliber fee-for-service professionals, to always be working on their business and on themselves personally and professionally. And to that end, on today's podcast, I really did have a great conversation with Denise Logan. So Denise is the author of The Seller's Journey, which is a business fable about navigating the emotional obstacles to selling your business. Denise has addressed more than 500 audiences on three continents about the psychology of business owners and how to make it easier when the time comes to let go. What's interesting about the seller's journey, and if you think about the notion that facts tell, stories sell, this is a great story and a great tool that you can use to make the introduction to your clients and prospective clients and strategic partners that positions you as an authority in the space. Uh, In this episode, we talked about the dual track specifically around a financial professional getting his or her house in order for the eventual exit liquidity event, but also how that can drive impact uh, with your clients and strategic partners. So I really hope you enjoy this. And if you ever have uh, an idea or feedback on our podcast or what we should cover in the future, please let us know. Hope you enjoy. Okay. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, right up front, I am proudly displaying my uh, wife's old hockey mom mug from back in the day. She was the ultimate hockey mom. Our kids are grown up now, but it's the playoffs in the National Hockey League. And uh, I've made all my emotional picks for who I think is going to prevail. And uh, yeah, very excited this time of year, but also excited because we're going to have a great conversation with Denise Logan. Uh, You can look her up, deniselogan.com. She is the author of a really interesting book called The Seller's Journey. I highly recommend that. She's got an incredible array of skills and value that she's going to bring to this conversation. So Denise, how are you doing? So great. It's nice to be with you. And I'm glad you explained the hockey mom, because I I was going to have questions about that. So (laughs) you let us right in with it. You know, like we all, as we get a little older in life, we have these sort of sentimental ornaments that we keep. And this one takes me back. It transports me instantly to those road trips and cold drinks. And uh, yeah, so it's a, it's a great symbol. I love it. Um, the premise of this conversation, Denise, you have this great mindset and statement that we will all leave our business at some point. And the whole concept here is we want to do it on our own terms. And there's a dual track to this because I am constantly reminding our clients, and these are high caliber fee-for-service professionals, that they are building an enterprise with immense value. And every investment of effort they make into that enterprise drives their legacy, it drives their personal fulfillment, and drives the eventual liquidity event that they're going to have themselves. But the more seriously they take it, the more relevant they will be to the ultimate client that is a business owner, in my view, and many people confirm that. But there are so many evolving needs and even unmet needs that exist in the life of a business owner, especially as they 
uh, start to hit their stride and get closer to their inflection point. So let's jump right into that. Let's talk about the dual track and why a financial professional has to take their own exit plan seriously and in the process, Denise, make themselves more attractive to business owners. Why don't we start there? Thanks so much. You know, Duncan, I do say we will all leave our businesses voluntarily or involuntarily. When I hear someone say, if I leave my business or if I retire, I'm like, oh, that word is when, not if. Absolutely every one of us will leave. And for an advisor who isn't thinking about that exit, your clients are thinking about it whether they ask you or don't ask you that question. I spoke at a conference in Austin in February of this year, and I was at the bar before, not right before I went on, but the evening before. (laughs) And I was talking to an advisor who said he was in his late 70s, and he said, I know I should be preparing to leave my business, and I really care about my clients, and I want them to land somewhere safely. But when I look at how little I'm likely to get for my life's work, I just can't seem to say yes to letting go. And I think the lesson from that is he had not invested in his business as if it was something that would sell. And what a tragedy for him and for his clients because he's hanging on. He hasn't been investing in his business or in his clients because he's tired. He's worn out. And that mindset is a self-fulfilling prophecy because it wouldn't take much in terms of tweaking and adjusting for him to amplify the value of that business. But obviously, he's convinced himself uh, that that's the way it is. Now, everybody listening in, I don't want you to be misled by Denise's soothing and calm demeanor because she is incredibly direct, very strong. And I'm convinced based on our initial conversation, Denise, like you said, some things that were very eye-opening and thought-provoking, but you're not trying to put somebody in a mindset of, okay, you're wrong. You feel you're doing someone a disservice by not waking them up and taking this as seriously as possible. And just everybody, this is a very rare combination because Denise is a lawyer, but she's also a mental health professional, which I've never heard of that combination in one person before. So you represent the art and science of what it means to maximize a business and to get it right when it comes time to that liquidity event. Tell, tell us how that all came about. Did you start as a lawyer or was it the other way around? I started as a mental health professional. Oh. And even a funny little beginning, I always wanted to be a lawyer. My best friend and I, when we were in elementary school, read every Perry Mason book that there was. And we decided that we were going to be criminal defense lawyers And neither of us became that. But when I was in high school, the guidance counselor said to me, you don't want to be a lawyer. Oh, my gosh. If you're a lawyer, you're going to end up as a spinster all alone. You will never meet a man. I was like, well, 
I don't want that, do I? So I ended up going and getting a mental health degree. And partway through my training, I realized, oh, he should not be advising young women. And when you hear that story, you'll think I went to high school in 1950, but it wasn't. It was in 1980 that this man was giving that kind of advice. So my mental health training is in two interesting tracks that at the time I wouldn't have even been able to explain why I chose them both. The first is in work and financial disorders. So people who attach to their work and their money Mm. as the most important attachment for them. And the other is in thanatology, which is the study of death and dying. At the time, I was like, hmm, those are both interesting to me. At this later time in my life, I can clearly see how those come together. Mm. Because when we are moving away from our mortality and we're worried about end of life, so many times we're talking about money. So if you look at almost any article that shows up on, we'll say, MSN, the five mistakes retirees make, they are always about money. Those are not the biggest mistakes that people make around retiring. It is that they have no life on the other side of that. And yet when we, especially as a profession, when we continue to focus exclusively on the money, that is what our clients will talk to us about. They are afraid of lots of things in preparing to exit their businesses. But if we as advisors and the investment bankers and the lawyers and the financial advisors are all in some ways guilty of this, if all we talk about is the money that they will receive, they will not share with us the other emotional fears that have them stuck. That is so good. I didn't even really recognize that those two areas of expertise were actual things. But now, of course, they make so much sense, especially with demography and those forces picking up steam. It's interesting. You were asking me earlier about Always On, and I I mentioned Jim Rohn said, always work harder on yourself, on yourself, than you do on your job. And I have to think that what you were getting at there, people fixate so much on the money as they should, but maybe sometimes to a fault where there's some collateral damage because there's so much fear, 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 I won't have enough fear. I might outlive my money. And as a result, there is this anticlimax on the other side where not only are they not well prepared to live a full life after they've retired, but maybe they've even put so many things off while they were trying to get to their number leading up to that point. But, but I, my, what I was trying to say there is Jim Rohn also said that it's not just what we earn that makes us valuable. It's who we become. And so I, I have to think that what we're, what we're going to get at here is just making sure there's balance in our own lives, but also we're, we're provoking a conversation with our clients to ensure that they have balance, not just in terms of their net worth, but in terms of their worldview and, and the quality of their life. And for ourselves, right? We model that. I often say to business owners from the stage, 
You know how you choose the best advisor? Look, technical proficiency and investment ability is the bare minimum, Mm -hmm. right? Clients assume that you have that. What makes the difference is can you, as an advisor, walk this path with your client? And some of how you get prepared to walk that path is do you know what your exit strategy is? If I were in the process of selling my business, and we can talk about when I exited my own business, one of the questions I would ask an advisor is, what is your plan to leave your business? Tell me about your exit. And if an advisor could not answer that question, why should they be advising me as a business owner? If you haven't prepared for that, and thought about that yourself, how are you prepared to help me navigate those obstacles? You know, it's interesting. Tom Stanley, who wrote uh, Marketing to the Affluent and The Millionaire Next Door, he said, when you meet a financial advisor and that advisor asks you for your financial statements, ask for his too. Ask for hers as well just to make sure that there's this sense of congruency. So you're basically going along that same line because that's part of the fit process. Philosophically, do we see the world the same way? So it's not just that I trust your technical ability. Yeah, you know, the world is changed more by our example than our opinions, right? So a fee-for-service professional is very proficient at giving opinions, judgment, but it adds so much credibility when they can show their own example, what I've done myself. So that's part of what will amplify their magnetic pull and make them more attractive. And and we're talking both the emotional and the technical part of the exit, right? There is a technical aspect and a structural aspect, the transaction. But for all of us, as we prepare to leave our work, it is a transition, It is the single largest transition in most people's professional adult life. And an advisor who is able to attend to the transition is so much more valuable than one who is only tending to the transaction. So part of the reason why I think that's an important question to be able to answer for our clients, how do I plan to leave my business? You know, we pretend as if we will all know the day when we exit. We don't know the day. And we're in the industry, we're all well aware of life expectancy charts. Duncan, do you know anyone who died before the life expectancy chart number? I do. And so do I. And so does every single person who is listening. And so we pretend as if we will be able to plan for this and we'll know when. We don't always get to know. You know what's funny about that? Sorry to interrupt you there, but I just had to say that um, I was talking to a leader of a team earlier this week and I mentioned to him, because we were talking about this very thing, getting planned, making yourself obsolete. So it's not the David show right? You've depersonalized the business. The clients are 
really bought into the practice and the process and the bench strength and all of that. And you just happen to be the person that oversees it all. But I said, don't be surprised because he was talking about his date. And I said, don't be surprised when you get all of this built out that it adds so much rejuvenation that your desire to exit completely goes away because you realize this isn't a job. This is a calling. This is something I love to do. And because I've got my house in order, my clients are in good hands. My team's in good hands. I'm in good hands. My legacy is secure. Wait a second. I love what I do. So it's, it's to your earlier point. I mean, it's not this sort of gradual, I'm going to die at my desk and I'm going to, you know, not really enjoy the ride. It's, it's, it's just inverting it, flipping it, getting everything in sync. And then seeing what it activates in terms of one's fulfillment and purpose. You know, I wrote a column last year called, Is Dying at Your Desk Tragic or Noble? You might imagine how I come down on the, on the side of that. But it really looks at, we think we know when we will exit. What if your spouse is ill and you mm-hmm. need to care for your spouse? What if you're just burned out? I mean, this is what happened for me. So I, I was a mental health professional. Eventually, I did become a lawyer, and I practiced law. I built a significant-sized firm, and I was burning out. And everyone I talked to about the burnout, I was in my late 30s. Everyone I talked to about the burnout said, oh, just go on vacation, buy a new car, Right, all of the things that we think will somehow cure this burnout. <clears throat> but it didn't work for me. And I ended up making a super ugly, choppy exit from my own business in my late 30s at a time when probably advisors would have said to me, Oh, you know what? We can just build this up and make it something bigger. And you can have a bigger exit if you hang on for five more years. I didn't have five more years in me. So I exited. I got rid of my house and bought a motorhome. (laughs) I ran off. That's a whole story we'll have separately over a beverage sometime. But I traveled. I thought it would be six months to clear my head and figure out what came next. And it turned into several years where I traveled all over North and Central America. Super fun. But I came off the road and joined a friend's business who was preparing it for sale. And over the next 10 years, we took that business to the market three times, and he could not let go. Mm -hmm. And I left and did a research study about why we get stuck. So here I was. I waited too long and was ready to give my business away. And he went too early and was not able to let go. And what I saw were a whole variety of reasons why owners get stuck. And this applies to our advisors. I mean, even if you are working for someone else, you will leave your job at some point. And one of the questions that I like to ask is, what does work provide for you other than money and financial security? It's a great question to first answer for ourselves and then ask your client. So, Duncan, if you and I were just brainstorming, what are the things that work provides for you other than work, money, and financial security? 
immense personal fulfillment on many levels. Structure is a big, important part. I often hear folks say, well, I'm not going to sit around and do nothing. Like, oh, baby, of course you're not. Who told you that that's what it would be like? Retirement for us will not be like retirement was for our parents and grandparents. We're not going to be happy playing golf and waiting for Wheel of Fortune to come on and feel like we've had a satisfying retirement. So there is structure. There is a place to go, right? During COVID, weren't we all ready to get out of the house? And guess what? Your spouse was ready for you to get out of the house. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I did my first uh, speech not long ago in a long time. And uh, I'm pretty sure when I told my wife it was happening, she said, oh, thank God. I mean, (laughs) oh, I'm so happy for you. (laughs) I mean, yeah, but it's true. I mean, this notion of retirement, I'm not trying to get away from any of that. And maybe that's why business owners do kick the can down the road a little bit and avoid some of the planning is because maybe they really do like the structure and they like the fulfillment that comes from what they're building. And it gives them a sense of identity because I I have to think that if I were an employee and maybe I wasn't necessarily feeling like I was building something, I was transacting, I was trading time for money. I had financial security because of my job, but it didn't activate a deep sense of purpose, then maybe I would want to get away from that at some point and go do something else. But my view is, I mean, you can only golf and garden so much. I mean, there's we're given this immense blessing to contribute to the world. And it's like alchemy on so many levels. But, but do you get the sense that between an entrepreneur, a business owner versus an employee, that one aspires to retire versus one, maybe you just can't come to terms with it yet. So they just put it off to the side and keep grinding it out. You know, the reason I ask that question, what does work provide other than money and financial security? And I'll tell you, I typically... We'll keep poking until we get 15 distinct answers Mm. to that question. 15. 15. And here's the reason. The first ones that come are the ones that we've talked about, right? Because they're a little, they're even a little aspirational. But we are getting so much from our work. Friendship, intellectual stimulation, the thrill of the chase, the clothes power. The things that come in the last four or five on that list are the ones that will derail our exit because those are the ones that are hard to even admit to ourselves. So let's just assume that uh, I had a conversation with someone the other day that was fascinating. Father and son owned business and the father is uh, refusing to leave. And they're in a little bit of a power struggle. Two interesting things happened. One, the son said to him, to the father, come on, mom has been waiting to travel with you forever. And I said to him, does your dad like to travel? And he goes, no, he's a crazy homebody. 
can you see how he might stay stuck in the business because that gives him the excuse to not have to do something he doesn't want to do? The other thing that was fascinating that came out in the conversation is the father is kind of a bully. Guess what? He gets to bully at work. Where else will he bully? And we're using some of the less, the less favorable traits, but we get a lot of things from our work. Getting really clear about what those are help us because getting a big old sack of cash, whether it's an employee retiring or an employer or a business owner leaving, getting a big sack of cash does not make those needs go away. So if friendship is one of the things that you get at work because your employees and customers and clients and suppliers are all your friendship circle, where will that get met outside? As advisors, if you're able to do that kind of deep work with your client, even just asking the question and getting those, keep going and offering up your own answers to that as well. So you can say, oh, well, here's something I get from work, and here's how I'm planning to get that need met. We can help our clients get those needs met, and they will retire. They will exit their business. But what keeps them stuck are things like, who am I going to hang out with? Mm -hmm. I'm going to be all alone. But they won't share that kind of information with us as their advisor unless we are able to have those conversations with them. And I think one of the key ways to be able to have that conversation is to do this work for yourself, mm -hmm. which comes back to the premise always on. Are you working on yourself? Do you know what these elements are for you in your business and how you're going to get those needs met elsewhere so that A, you can have a successful exit and a good life on the other side of your business? But even more importantly, it makes you able to be the trusted advisor for your clients. We bandy that phrase around so much, trusted advisor. Are you doing something different than everyone else? Or are you just saying you do? Are you showing up in this way with your clients in ways that really, truly matter? I want to, Denise, I want to jump ahead to the end for a second and then come back to something, <laughs> but you have a vast archive of content. You met, you mentioned that article that you wrote about the tragic or noble aspect. Is there content available that a financial professional can use of yours and repurpose it as a tip of the spear to open the conversation up with their clients to get them to really take this panoramic approach to planning seriously. Do you have that available? Yeah, I have tons of, so on my website, I have tons of articles that are there that are interestingly, often I write from both sides. Mm. Here's what your client is experiencing. Advisor, so are you. Okay. And here's what your client is experiencing. I think being able to toggle back and forth on both sides helps us to be skillful. I think it's also useful for our clients to understand, you know, we do this bizarre thing, Duncan. We do discovery sessions 
with our clients, right? The, they're sitting across from you and you have your list of questions, ask, 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 ask. When do they get to know us? When do they get to feel like they are in conversation with us? One of the tools that I use for that is called the Legacy Dinner. It's a mm. two and a half hour facilitated dinner conversation that is designed to deepen and build trust and connection with your clients or your circles of influence. Because every one of us has an array of people who we know. But do you know them? Clients choose advisors because we, we have the old saw, know, like, and trust. Notice that the word know comes first. Do we let them know us? And the dinner is set up as it's a, such a fascinating, deep experience that happens. It's for an advisor and 10 guests over dinner. And each of the guests is given an invitation, a special invitation to join us for dinner. And they're told, please come prepared to answer this one question. If I could take on the life of any other person, living, deceased, or imaginary, who would it be and why? Right away, when they receive this invitation, they're like, oh, this is different. This is not come to the steakhouse and hear the economist talk. This is something real. And the advisor will also be participating in this beautiful facilitated dinner conversation. And guests show up. Before they even come, they are talking to everyone they know about this dinner. Because they're saying, I got this invitation. Who should I be? Who would you be? They're already developing connection before they even come in the room. At a dinner that I hosted last fall, one of the guests said, I would like to be Wiley Coyote. I was like, Wiley Coyote, tell us more. And he had three reasons. The first was, Wiley Coyote is single focused. He knows exactly what he's after, that roadrunner, and he has never pulled off course. Reason two, Wiley Coyote has unlimited resources. He could clearly go to the Acme store and buy anything he wanted. And reason three, he's immortal. And you know, Duncan, each person's who they show up wanting to be and the why tells us so much about them, but the conversation goes deeper and deeper over the two and a half hours of dinner so that when your guests leave the dinner, they're walking away saying, I have to tell everyone I know about this dinner and they have to meet Duncan. And this is about getting to know our clients and to open with them. You can tell relationship is important in, the, in my worldview. Well, and with everything that we've collectively gone through in the last couple of years, I think that sense of belonging has been disrupted and there is a longing to get back into that. So it sounds like a great environment. I do want to come back to that because that sounds like a very thoughtful unique activity that in and of itself will bring value to the client community, but probably also has 
measurable impact on productivity. But I will come back to that because it's funny. <laughs> I've got a bookend story to tell you that. A customized podcast can add credibility and efficiency to your communication efforts. Sifting good prospects from the mass of suspects, staying top of mind with strategic partners, and activating more advocacy from existing clients can be achieved with a turnkey approach. Learn more at proudmouth.com. The best place to strengthen a client relationship is in the very place where you manage that relationship. BlueSquareToolkit.com has harnessed the best practices of Pareto systems and brought them to life in our easy to use system that is accessible on both your phone and your desktop. Simple technology to uncomplicate your life by creating clarity, accountability, and consistency for your entire team. Build stronger client relationships by tracking and archiving essential information on what matters in your client's life and make yourself indispensable and more referable in the process. Create a more consistent client experience and grow your business with the Blue Square Toolkit. Visit bluesquaretoolkit.com to get your 14-day free trial today. Back to the content for a second. Yeah. So <clears throat> I, I'm a big fan of content marketing. And just to, just to do some sifting and to let people raise their hand and say, you know what, this resonates with me. I want to I pursue this. So I'm, I'm going to suggest that everybody go to denislogan.com and go through the archive and then bring some of that value because we all endlessly talk about being a goals-based planner and using form as the framework and uh, your technical ability and bringing in speakers to talk about core competency and asset management strategies and philosophy. That's all it's expected. But when you round it out with family occupation and recreational drivers, it, it activates a conversation and it's interesting. We're all trying to make sure we're not up against red line. We're plateau avoidance. We're always trying to find that next level of, you know, that best version of ourself and also prevent some anticlimax on the other end after we achieve some, achieve some goals. It's like, you know, you climb Mount Everest, you get to the summit and it's like, okay, now what? I got to get back down and, you know, where do I go from here? I mean, we want to make sure that achievements are very, very meaningful. Kurt Vonnegut, a great author, he said, uh, you know, make sure as you go through life, and I'm paraphrasing, as you go through life, don't trivialize the little things because you get to a point in your life eventually where you realize they were the big things. And uh, we, we get this tunnel vision. That's my goal. But along the way, so, so key just to look around and savor what's going on. I, I want to come back to business owners mm -hmm. for a second because I am one and you, you got me thinking because I, you know, I love my team, quality people. I am starting to wonder because we're very, um, we have a, a pretty athletic environment here. 
ping pong table, pool, darts, pickleball, golf. You sound like a venture capital firm now, Duncan. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I just want to keep moving, right? But yeah. um, I'm starting to wonder if they're letting me win and maybe after our eventual li- liquidity event, maybe that'll stop happening because I, I do like playing. But I have to think that part of a business owner's mission gets amplified when they want and, and, and craft out a plan to enable employees to participate in the exit, right? All ships rise and we're, we're in this together and we're all going to benefit. But along the way, uh, I got to think that amplifies culture, uh, buy-in, uh, from an HR perspective, you know, I'm not asking you to trade your time for money. I want you to contribute to building something and we'll participate. I, I've got to think that that's an important piece that a business owner has to factor in for their team. Oh, gosh, you've hit on something. We have so many good threads going here. I can tell we're going to have another conversation. But yeah. I saw something, there was a post recently on one of the social media sites about why business owners should keep it a secret from their employees when they're exiting. Oh, for heaven's sake, mm. what are we talking about? And, you know, this particular advisor who's giving this advice, and I've heard it tons of times, oh my gosh, you can't tell anyone. So a couple of things happen when we're keeping secrets. Number one, there is this myth of the self-made man or self-made mm. person. We are not self-made. We have employees who helped us grow something. And so this, this particular, I didn't get involved in the social media post. I just was stewing about it on my side and wrote a post that'll come on my own because I don't want to discount that person's opinion is their own. Mm-hmm. But our employees are not commodities. They're not chattel that we're selling off. And the premise was, if my employees know, they might leave. Well, shouldn't the new owner also know that your employees would leave? Where are we in this place of deception and hiding and keeping things from each other? But there's an even greater reason other than our own integrity piece. When you are holding a secret, it trips off the fear sensor in your brain. Have you ever been in a situation, I'll give you an example of this. You're planning a surprise party for someone. And then you're out with that person and you wonder, do they know? Oh my gosh, do they know? What was that look? Do they know? All of that is going on tripping up your own fear, which emotionally is resonating through the space and scaring the other person. Anyone who thinks their employees don't know that they are selling their business is a fool. Our employees, just like our children, know so much more than we ever think they know. And in my workshops and when I'm speaking on stage, I do a piece about how fear shows up in our brain. Do you want to walk through that? Sure. And this is in my book as well. But so imagine your hand as a representation of your brain. The thumb is the amygdala. It's the fear sensor in our brain. It's the oldest part of our brain, always watching. It's a helpful part, but it's a little bit stupid. 
it can't tell the difference between real danger and perceived danger. So it's always scanning the environment, looking for danger. Duncan, if when you were a little boy, you were attacked by a bear, your amygdala would spot a big black dog and think it's a bear and signal you to run. It's doing that all the time. It spots a face that looks like the face that a parent made before all hell blew loose in your house and is sensing fear. So the amygdala um, fear sensor, do this, bring it across your palm and wrap your fingers over the front. So we've made uh, a client of mine calls it a girly fist because uh, men know not to put their thumbs inside their fist, apparently. But the part of your fist, that's this little part that's over the front fingers is the prefrontal cortex. It's the thinking part of our brain. So in this setup, the amygdala is safely tucked in. The thinking brain is on front. Now, move your thumb around. What do you notice, Duncan? It's pretty snug. Pretty snug. Now move the thumb around a little more aggressively. Fingers aren't on so tight. If the amygdala gets activated enough, enough fear is generated, you will flip your lid. We have that expression out. And for the folks who are listening to this, I hope you're doing that. Make your little girly fist and notice that when the fear gets high enough, your thinking brain goes offline. All day long, we are all walking around in various stages of fully tucked in to fully wigged out, always. And how we're showing up is also impacting the people around us. So fear shows up in one of five ways, and this has a relevance for our advisors. So we have five fingers. I'm going to tick off the five ways. Fight, flight, freeze fawn, F-A-W-N, and submit. Fight, flight, freeze, fawn, submit. We know how these show up in various ways. So we know what fight looks like, right? <laughs> we know what freeze, freeze, oh my gosh, fight. Well, let's do fight, flight. Flight is the client who's no longer returning your calls. <laughs> That's, I got to get away. Freeze. Freeze looks like overthinking, overanalyzing, slowing things down. Fawn. Fawn is people pleasing. Okay, yeah, I'll totally get you those documents. I will. Uh huh, I promise. And submit. If you've ever had a teenager in your house, you know what submit looks like. Fine, whatever. Have it your way. These five different ways, fear is a natural part. It will show up for us. And we have a pattern. Every one of us has a pattern. So for me personally, it shows up like this. When I'm afraid or even anxious, first, I will freeze. Then I will fawn. And then I will flee. So I have freeze, fawn, flight. If I can't get away, I might go to fight or submit. I might, depends. But that's my pattern. Once you know that pattern about me, it's super easy to help me resettle. What do you think your pattern is, Duncan? How do you think this shows up for you? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, 
candidly, as you're going through this, I'm thinking about the application uh, uh, in terms of relationship management. So I'm going to dodge the question because I do want to think about that personally. Yeah. Self-awareness is obviously so key. But I have to think in the spirit of fee worthiness, client engagement, advocacy, that some of these qualitative sort of bedside manner uh, approaches serve as uh, a bit of a wedge to create professional contrast when you're meeting a prospective client. So, so if I'm meeting a prospective client for the first time, they're in front of me because somebody spoke highly of me and they have unmet needs and a degree of dissatisfaction with their current situation. If I start balancing my technical ability with my qualitative value and getting somebody to think about where this is all going and what they need to address. That's got to be a bit of a wedge for professional contrast, but also for an existing client, uh, a wedge that keeps the door open as they get close to their liquidity event, because it's, it's so incredible how many times I've seen a financial professional who had a long-term client with millions of dollars entrusted with that professional. And then realizing that that, that three, four, five, seven million dollars represented 15 or 20% of that client's net worth. And when the liquidity event happened, because the advisor was on the outside of that event, all the money left. Right. If, if the qualitative is balanced with the quantitative, if, if the art, the artisan, emerges in the financial professional where they understand what you're talking about here, there's got to be uh, a rejuvenation in those relationships. There has to be. It's amazing. And I'm going to come back and talk about the book after I give you this piece. But here's how this shows up, this, this fight, flight, freeze, fawn, submit. It's showing up right now in your client meetings. We're talking about money with people. Mm -hmm. I mean, money has a whole bunch of taboo, a whole bunch of fear around it. What will you think of me? Will I seem dumb? Have I made ignorant decisions? Do I need to posture? Think about you're in a discovery session even with a client and you ask a question and they shut down or they pull back. Mm. As the advisor, do you even notice that? And if you do, what do you do with that? This little tool, I call it the handy dandy tool, right? Because we're talking about using our hand and it's a visual representation and it's all, it, there's a piece of it in the book that's fun. Being able to just do this with a client or a prospect early on, it gives us language to talk about what just happened, right? We, the amygdala is, the, is referred to as the lizard brain. Sometimes I'll just say, oh, no, the lizard's running the show right now. It brings a small amount of humor in, but we're giving a framework for our clients, right? I ask you, how does this show up for you? And it's fine that you didn't answer. If, I, if we were in a client meeting and I did this, right, and I would say, I would lay this out and I would tell about me first, right? Transparency. This is how it shows up for me. I would ask, 
let's say we have a couple, I might ask one and you'd say, ah, I don't really know. I might turn to the spouse and say, how does this show up for your husband or your wife? Because if I ask you this, Duncan, we're not going to expose your wife here on the show. But if I ask you, how does this play out for your wife? You would be able to spot it. You'd be able to say, when, we're, when an argument comes or when she's afraid, this happens, this happens, this happens. You would see the pattern. Okay. So, so back to, to the question to me, because I'm really trying to think this yeah. through. But as you get older, where in that five reactions, I guess, because I, I'm trying, you know, Stephen Covey said, seek first to understand before yeah. you're understood. Right. Like, take it in, process the information. Don't overreact, don't underreact, just be thoughtful and deliberate. Where does that fit into that mix in terms of interpreting situations? So we do this really interesting thing in our profession. I call it content versus context. So the content is what you want to be talking to your client about. All right. You want to be talking about the market crazy that happened yesterday. Mm -hmm. Their reaction is what's going on under the surface. That is the context. So if your client is experiencing one of these fear responses, we need to pause the content, stop talking about what happened in the market and address what's happening for them under the surface. Because they call you and they want to talk about the market. What do they really want to know? Am I going to be okay? Mm-hmm. Am I going to be okay? And when we use the spreadsheets and all of the statistics, are we addressing the essential human need, which is to feel safe, right? We tuck the amygdala in, we bring that thinking brain on. Otherwise, you can give them all the statistics you want. So one of the valuable pieces of this particular tool is doing it very early on, or even with clients who you've already been representing, but introducing this concept, it allows you, number one, to know their pattern. They're like, oh, I notice, we'll just use Denise, that when Denise is anxious, first thing she's going to do is freeze. You know what happens with freeze? I'm not going to return calls or I'm going to not be able to make a decision. I'm going to go into the eternal waffling mode. I need to think about it. I need to think about it. That's freeze. If we can talk about it and know, oh, Denise is experiencing freeze right now and even name it, it helps to bring the thinking brain back on track. And it certainly helps before I go into flight and escape from you. This is such a valuable piece, knowing how we show up and how our clients show up. Can I give you one more piece of this? Can I just ask you to make sure? Did you call it amygdala? (laughs) A-M-Y-G-D-A-L-A. That's actually in the brain? uh, Is it connected? Because fight or flight, that's tied to the penal gland, is it not? So there are a whole bunch of different parts in our brain, but the amygdala is the fear sensor. Okay. It is the part, like I said, that is always scanning. And you can see this. Have you ever been in a meeting and all of a sudden things go off the rails and you have no idea what just happened? Somebody's amygdala got tripped. Hmm. 
So it might be, and there are all kinds of unconscious things that trip it off, right? Um, you've been, you're someone, literally, there's a facial expression that happens that your amygdala spots and interprets. So over and over, what we're doing is being able to understand this. We don't need to go into, I mean, I can certainly do a whole piece on the the neurobiology of what's going on in the brain. And I do that when I speak, but the, the piece here is we're normalizing the human emotion. That's always going on when we're dealing with things like money. So I want to talk just a piece about how this shows up in the book. And then I want to give you one more tool that advisors can use. So the seller's journey is written as a business fable. It's the story of a business owner one year after he sells his business. And he goes on a trip across Glacier National Park with his banker, his lawyer, his financial advisor, and the buyer who bought his firm. And if your listeners are wondering who gets shoved down the crevasse, no one dies on the trip. <laughs> As they cross the glacier, they relate the physical obstacles they're facing to the emotional obstacles that he faced in letting go of his business. And this book was written for a number of reasons. One, because it's just such a fun, easy read. But the characters in the book are all showing up the way you hope to show up with your client. It's building trust. If you give this book to a client, the client is going to be reading the book thinking, huh, I wonder if Duncan could be my Andrew. Andrew is the name of the financial advisor in the story. It's already building trust. And then you could give the book to a client or a prospect, and then three weeks later, have a conversation with them about the book. What they will reveal to you are all kinds of the fears that are going on for them. What, what struck them? For example, at one point in the book, before they, there are tons of how-to books on how to sell your business. This is not a how-to. This is how to be emotionally present through the sale and how to choose advisors who can do this with you. At one point in the book, the characters all have to put their uh, electronic devices in a lockbox before they can go out on the glacier. And one fella has a damn meltdown being separated from his phone. The metaphor of that is for a business owner, what happens when you're no longer going to have anyone calling you? And they work through this. In the book, they also play out this whole fight, flight, freeze, fawn, submit, the amygdala, all of the pieces that we talked about here, the characters use in the book. So it's a really great tool for an advisor. Read the book. You'll see it. It will help you to visualize it and use it. Give the book to your client. You can actually, you have a setup to do this in your office then. To say, remember in the book where the characters went through this? How does this show up for you? It's a super easy relational tool. One of the first books I read as I got into business was Think and Grow Rich. Yeah. And as I started to understand this space, I started saying to my clients, you think for a living. You're a fee-for-service professional. You think for a living. And your clients come to you looking for your judgment, your opinions, your guidance. 
But what, what I'm learning here is taking situational awareness when you're in front of another human being to another level, being able to understand and interpret fears, aspirations, apprehensions, anxiety. Michael Yusuf had a great quote. He said, an opinion is something you hold. A conviction is something that holds you. So what I'm hoping comes out of this is a deeper sense of conviction that what a financial professional does and the value they bring, you know, Jim Bowen calls it the noble profession. I mean, the shadow you cast is so substantial. We are in such an intimate relationship with our clients around their money. And especially thinking about an owner who is about to let go of their business, there it's not a mystery why owners refer to it as their baby. Mm-hmm. It is not a mystery. And sometimes I hear people say that mockingly, like, oh, they think it's their baby. Yeah, it is. And they are being separated from something that has created identity, right? One of the pieces, so I did this, and I've done this with a bunch of advisors. We do something I call the fireside chat. And that can be in person, it can be virtual. But the fireside chat is an intimate conversation with the advisor and me. And the setup is, it's almost like your audience is, it's as if we're in a coffee shop and they're at the next table overhearing us talk about these very things that we talked about here. And the purpose of the fireside chat is not to have the advisors, clients, or prospects say, I need to go find Denise Logan. I'm like, no, please don't. You know what? You need to choose that advisor who's so dialed in to this need that you have, they are your trusted advisor. So I serve in this, like a wrapper around the advisor through this lightly structured conversation to help them connect more deeply with their clients, to show that, yes, you actually can talk to me about these important things as your advisor, because I'm not shying away from them either. It's an amazing setup to be able, you know, clients want to talk to someone. They need this. Well, especially a business owner who is the proverbial 25-year overnight success story. It it is their baby. They built it from (laughs) nothing. And so much friction and adversity and moments of doubt. And, and then, you know, this inflection point happens. I do want to say as a call to action for everybody, because we're going to have to have another conversation, uh, Denise, for sure. But love that. <laughs> go to denise.logan.com, scan through her archive content and, and repurpose that as uh, a bit of a, a hook to start this conversation. Number one. I, I, you know, it's so interesting because over the last 10 years, I know many financial professionals that part of their client experience and part of their process was to have a retirement party for their clients, 
who would either have the liquidity event or hit their number and bow out of their job and work with the spouse or the family to organize this party. And it was a great business development driver because you're amongst friends and family members. And of course, there's this always this moment where you know the client says, this is my financial advisor. He helped me get here or she helped me get here. And it's just this immense endorsement to this captive audience, which is a phenomenal idea. But what I'm seeing here, your legacy dinners, your fireside chats, that you've got down to a science, that's something you can buy into as a financial professional to get so far out in front of the retirement or the liquidity event at a minimum for your most significant clients. I mean, we talk about 80-20 and AAA clients. You know, we jokingly said, you know, because many, many advisors are growing down. You know, they're going from 300 clients down to 75. It's that whole premise of, would you rather have 100 pennies or four quarters, right? What's easier to manage and what, you know, all of those symbolic aspects. But but I have to say, you've, you've had a little bit of a, a sampling in terms of how Denise conducts herself and, and represents this from a technical side, but also an emotional side. I, I You've got to pursue the idea of having Denise facilitate a legacy dinner with a small group of clients or a fireside chat. And you do those virtually, not just in person? The legacy dinner is an in-person event. The fireside chat can be in-person or as a virtual experience. Okay. And they can get that information off of deniselogan.com? Yeah. And and then you've got financial professionals that have uh, used the seller's journey, the the fable, as the, the door opener, the wedge to open up the conversation. Absolutely. And you can white label the cover of that book. Mm. So it has your logo on it. So there are a whole array of ways to be able to use that book. Think about, you know, everyone is chasing the owner who's just about to have their exit. My view is you want to have the relationship deeper with that owner because the investment banker or the business broker who's handling the sale of that business, guess what? They are also looking to capture that money. So an investment banker is handling the sale, big windfall. Their wealth management team would like nothing better than to scoop up that AUM. Oh, yeah. You know how that doesn't happen? You have a relationship with deep, the owner. Deep, deep, Absolutely. This and is a not relationship I- with, the, with the value-added support team, like all the other service providers engaged in that. So it's, it's not blindsiding. They're involved. Correct. Like yeah, the legacy dinner is ideal to use with as a relationship cultivation tool with your circles of influence, your centers of influence. If you think of that, right? If I were to ask you, Duncan, how many lawyers do you know? Oh, good grief. Maybe too many, right? Too many. And a huge array. But if I asked you, Duncan, I need a lawyer. How many are you going to give me? One, two, maybe One two. three. Yeah. The legacy dinner is designed to put you in that one, two, or three role with your circles of influence because they know plenty of financial advisors. 
How do you distinguish? This is a one of those difference makers out in the world. And so if a financial doing, professional is, is yeah. striving to shift from being a generalist to a specialist and narrow cast instead of broadcast, go deeper and create a reputational equity that I am the go-to for business owners uh, approaching and executing on the liquidity event, engaging all of these other service providers, you've got tools that can help somebody put that all together? Absolutely. And, you know, Tom Deans, um, who was on, a guest on your show a while ago, made such a really great point. If, if I were to look at your client list and you have all different people, that's one business. If you have all of the siblings and children and multi-generational people staying with you, that's a real business. And what we're looking for is what are all of the ways that you can bond more deeply with your clients in ways that the family knows you? So that when, when mom or dad dies, they're not like, yeah, I'm going to take all that money and move it to my college buddy who's just getting his practice started. No, you know them, right? I did a legacy dinner at a family governance meeting, which was so amazing a way to really deepen with the family, but also because the advisor is participating in this dinner, you're not in a discovery session where you're like sitting on the side, checking boxes. You are participating. They are also knowing you. This is the relationship, the mesh that holds relationships together. And the side added bonus of this that I think is just super fun is it's changing you. Mm. It is I love changing that dual track. I love to it. do this work. Yeah. You know, we are, you can be technically proficient and you must be, but do you care about your clients as if they were your favorite uncle? The way, and oftentimes I'll hear advisors say, well, I don't really know how to do this. I stay away from those pieces. I'm like, staying away from it causes harm. When we only treat people as if they are a number, they feel it. They feel it. And your legacy is being made as well in the way you interact with your clients and your peers and your circles of influence. You know, it's interesting. I've got a service provider. I know I'm not his biggest client. I know it. But he makes me feel like his favorite client based on the way he conducts himself. And it's interesting because in this abstract space, I'm constantly asking people, what do your clients trust specifically? What do they trust? And more often than not, what they end up describing is they trust you, the person, which is a phenomenal foundation. But build on that. Make sure the clients trust the practice and the process as much as they trust you and your people. And what you're talking about here is just opening people's eyes about your capabilities now and in the future, the degree that you care, but you've also got the goods. You've got a process in place that will put this, all these pieces together. You have a practice that'll create a client experience. 
and you're a good person. That is absolutely unstoppable when it comes to contrast, fee worthiness, and referability, in my view. So my my call to action for everybody is if you want to go up market, if you want to make yourself absolutely indispensable to business owners and professionals that will have enterprise value and immerse yourself into the network of other service providers in this space. This is such a great activity. Start with the content. Talk to Diane, uh, Denise rather about the um, fireside chat and the legacy dinner and start stirring that pot. It's, it's going to serve you well. It has to. It's going to so, change your life. And, and not to overstate it. <laughs> no, no, no. But you, it's such a, Again, I'm going to quote another Jim Rohn. He said, the best way to take care of your clients is to take impeccable care of yourself. So there's a two for one here. You make yourself more attractive. You get your own house completely in order. And you're activating an ability to attract really attractive clients. It's, it's such a great and, and propel you to self-actualization, that best version of yourself. I mean, I just love everything about this. So, and I am so pleased by the way you position it and represent it because it's, you know, you've got the the core competency, having that lawyer, just that the way that you're wired, but also having that mental health perspective. I, I, I go out of my way when I'm talking to our clients, I ask them, I said, tell me how your relationship with your best clients have changed in the last two years. Just tell me that. And there's a bit of a pause, but when I hear somebody say, you know, the relationships are deeper, they're bearing their soul to me. They're really opening up to me on another level. Like I thought I knew them. I really know them. When a client asks me if I know a therapist who can talk to their teenage son, or if I know a uh, marriage counselor, or if I know a great trainer like they're they're asking questions that really speak to uh i'm trying to just figure things out a little bit further and and it just confirms money's a means to all those ends so i don't know you're right i mean some people just want to stay in the lane and make sure the statements look good and and that's fine but uh, i think there's an opportunity here to to go a little deeper and strengthen relationships further. And I think this is an absolutely impeccable way to do that. So we've been carrying on now for a little over an hour. It's been fantastic. We're going to have to do, go deeper and have another conversation, but deniselogan.com, go to that site. It is a very, very nice, clean, intuitive site. And um, think about that book, uh, The Seller's Journey as something for yourself, but also something that you can make available at a minimum to your favorite clients that are, that this would resonate with. So Denise, I just want to say thank you very much for your time. And I look forward to round two. It was such a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Duncan. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Always On with Duncan McPherson, where our objective is to enable professionals to always be working on their business and on themselves. Want to learn more about Duncan and his team? Visit ParetoSystems.com. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. 
The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Pareto Systems. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This podcast is powered by Proudmouth, the influence accelerators. If you're like me and want to spend more time educating people and less time selling, Proudmouth helps turn Main Street experts like you into trusted mainstream authorities. They will help amplify your influence over a growing audience of magnetically attracted fans. Visit Proudmouth.com to learn more.